0: Hello and welcome to episode 241 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is one I've followed closely for a number of years. A brazen murder, witnessed by many, but just who was responsible and why. If you haven't pre-ordered it yet, please don't forget that my book on Angus Sinclair, Gone Fishing, is finally released on the 28th of June, which is super exciting please head to mangobooks.co.uk to order your life-changing signed copy. Although I am of course biased, I think it's a great book that any fan of true crime will enjoy. That's mangobooks.co.uk As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new supporters Paul Dobbs and Rosie Fairley. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. You probably know by now that I love Best Fiends, my favourite puzzle game on my phone. It's great as I love the challenging puzzles, but it's also a casual game that I can play whenever I grab some free time. And whenever I do, it always amazes me that there's something new going on, whether it's a new challenge, a fun monthly event, or just new levels. The makers of Best Fiends have created a whole world right on my phone. It's got great music, it's bright and colourful, with great graphics and gameplay, and there's a story all about these cute characters which you pick up on the journey to help you in future levels. It's a lovely relaxing break from focusing on the detail of true crime. Ah, did I mention that you don't need internet to play? For me living in a rural location with rubbish internet, that's a major bonus. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, so let's set some context with our guest the month and year game. Number one in the UK charts for 15 weeks was Wet 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 with Love Is All Around Us. And it was just as much fun in the US where we had to suffer 11 weeks of I swear from All For One in the top spot. The top selling album in Australia this year was a real joy for rock fans. Music Box from Mariah Carey. In the news this month, a Chinook helicopter crashed on the Mull of Kintyre in Scotland killing 29 people. West Indian batsman Brian Lara hit a record 501 not out and 390 runs in one day for Warwickshire versus Durham at Edgbaston. In LA, police chased O.J. Simpson's Ford Bronco for 90 minutes before he eventually gave up, watched live on national TV. And in UK true crime news, Magistrates in Gloucester charged Fred West with a total of 11 murders, believed to have been committed between 1967 and 1987, while Rose West was charged with 9 murders, which were believed to have been committed between 1970 and 1987. Did you get the month and year? It was June 1994. Today's story comes from the Orkneys in the north of Scotland. Kirkwall is 130 miles north of Aberdeen and almost 530 miles north of London on the northern coast of mainland Orkney with its harbours in the Bay of Kirkwall to the north and Scapa Flow, one and a half miles to the south. Tourists from over 140 cruise ships annually spoil the, sorry, they normally visit the island and there is a wide range of independent shops. It's a beautiful place and not one associated with violence and murder. In fact, ahead of 1994, the population of around 20,000 people hadn't experienced the horror of murder for 26 years. But that all changed one evening in June 1994. It was a busy Thursday evening at the Mamatas restaurant in Bridge Street on Kirkland, the only Indian restaurant on the island. The restaurant manager that night was twenty-seven year old Shamsuddin Mahmud, who was known as Shamol. He was originally from Bangladesh, the youngest of seven brothers and four sisters. He graduated in economics and after the death of both his parents, his brother, who was based in London, encouraged him to join him, which he did. After visiting the Orkneys a couple of years earlier, he'd been keen to come and work on Kirkland for the summer season. The busy restaurant in stunning surroundings would be an enjoyable place to spend the summer as he continued to save for a law degree. When the figure walked into the restaurant wearing a balaclava, Shamal was serving a local family of four and he looked up and smiled to greet them. In the restaurant, the diners didn't know what to think. Was it just a prank or maybe a robbery? But it was neither. The stranger pulled a gun from his pocket, and the sound of a gunshot rang out in the restaurant. The bullet hit Chamol in the eye, forcing him to the floor. As the restaurant erupted into screams, the gunman calmly walked backwards out of the restaurant saying nothing, before disappearing as quickly as he arrived. The screams inside the restaurant were replaced by a deathly silence as diners rushed to help the stricken restaurant manager. It was immediately apparent that he was dead. The bullet casing lay on the floor of the restaurant, and the bullet that had killed him had passed through his skull and now lay lodged in the wall. Shamal's brother, Shef was away working in Bangladesh at this time, so his wife Ruby made the trip to Orkney to identify the body. As we discuss so often on this podcast, the ripple of murder affects so many people, and Ruby was profoundly affected by this experience. So much so that she suffered from depression, and later had a full mental breakdown. Shafiuddin later told the Herald Scotland paper how he came to England in 1967 from Bangladesh. When his brother Shamal was only one month old, he said, I did not see him again until he was about nine years old. He was a very good boy. Sometimes I feel I've not only lost a brother, but a son as well. If I'd never brought him here, he would have remained alive today. It did not occur to me that I'd have to bring his dead body home. Shemal's body was taken back to Bangladesh, where one of his younger brothers has now started a scholarship in his name. Meanwhile, back on Orkney in June 1994, detectives from Inverness quickly arrived at the island to begin the search for the murderer. The gunman had seemingly disappeared unnoticed, and the extra checks at the ferry terminals and airport did not produce a suspect. Fear ripped through the island, a place that was almost from a different time, and where previously locals had always left their doors unlocked, they were now firmly bolted. It was even reported that one resident moved her horse into her house as she was terrified it could be attacked. The gentle local news was now eagerly listened to for updates on progress on the murder inquiry. As you can imagine, rumours swirled around the community. Had he been killed over drugs, gambling debts, a feud or a relationship that had gone wrong? Had it been a case of mistaken identity? Or maybe an organised hit from someone back in Bangladesh? Or was it a warning to someone else? Everybody seemed to have a view, but as the weeks passed there was no clear lead for detectives, despite their urgency to find the killer. Almost 9,000 people were interviewed. Locals, tourists with the help of Interpol, and also the Bangladeshi communities in London and Southampton, where Shamal had lived since he'd been in the UK but it seemed that Shemol had been experiencing difficulties in the days prior to the murder. In the early hours of the morning, two days before the murder, Shemol had been seen arguing with two men outside the restaurant. Was this significant? And on the night Shemol was murdered, a local woman had received a death threat on her phone saying, your life was at an end. The number was very close to that of the restaurant. Had that message been intended for Shemol? but the only concrete evidence that detectives possessed was the 9mm bullet casing from the gun that had been used in the murder. It was a rare bullet rejected from an order made by the British military a number of years before as the quality wasn't up to scratch. Eddie Ross was a constable in the local police force and a man who being a soldier with the Black Watch Regiment and the Royal Green Jackets who had served tours of duty in Northern Ireland. He was also the president of the local gun club. He was asked to test shoot all the 9mm weapons on the island, but he couldn't find any of these distinctive bullets anywhere. There was no match. But then, on August the 12th, detectives finally got an unexpected breakthrough. Eddie Ross told colleagues that in his house he had bullets similar to those used by the killer. When questioned, he told detectives that he'd one sealed box of the ammunition and didn't know where they were from, not revealing that they were given to him by a former school friend and Royal Marine called Jamie Spence. Detectives managed to track down Spence, who very openly told them how he had given Eddie Ross two packets of the bullets one sealed and one opened, contradicting what Eddie had told them. He also said that Ross had three times told him to lie about the bullets. Detectives searched the house, including the room of his 15-year-old son Michael. They were shocked by what they found there. Items such as a notebook with a Nazi swastika, an SS symbol and death to the English written on it there was also a balaclava found. And just before, a witness had come forward to say that they'd seen a man dressed in similar clothing to the killer, including a balaclava, in nearby woods a fortnight before the shooting. And CCTV suggested that this person was Michael Ross. He was quizzed about being in the woods and initially denied this, though he later admitted it was him saying he was going to confront a boy who had abused a local girl. He also gave an alibi for where he was on the night of the killing with friends, which was also later proved to be incorrect. Had 15-year-old Michael Ross killed Shamal in a racist attack? Detectives believed that he had, but they didn't have enough evidence to press any charges. But while Michael Ross carried on with his life, Eddie Ross, his dad, was suspended from the police force and then charged with willful neglect and violation of duty, by not revealing the information about the bullets in his home. When he faced trial, he said that the reason he didn't open up about the bullets is because he was afraid that he or other members of his family might be suspected of the murder. He was found guilty and sentenced to four years in prison. In June 1999, he was released from prison, although by then he had resigned from the police service. He continued to maintain his innocence in connection with the murder in June 1994. He stayed on the island, and later became an undertaker. His son Michael, meanwhile, went on to establish an army career as a firearms instructor in the Black Watch Regiment, progressing to sergeant. He received a mention in dispatches for bravery in Iraq where he saw heavy combat and lost some of his close army friends. Away from work, he married and had two daughters. But then in 2006, a witness to the murder came forward. Initially, he wrote an anonymous letter which he handed in to the police station but he was recognised and father of four, William Grant then told police in person that he'd seen Michael Ross on the night of the murder in the Kiln Corner public toilets near the crime scene. He said that Michael Ross was wearing a balaclava and was holding a gun. William continued that he'd seen Ross in the weeks before the murder outside Shemol's restaurant shouting racist abuse. William Grant said he hadn't come forward for 12 years because he'd been afraid. His testimony was enough for detectives. He charged Michael Ross with murder and he faced a five week trial in Glasgow Crown Court in 2008. During the case, the jury heard that Michael Ross had been obsessed with guns in his teens, doodled Nazi imagery in a notebook, and told a comrade in the army cadets that blacks should be shot. His defense made clear that when he was in the army, He'd shown no sign at all of any racist tendencies, highlighting one occasion when a black soldier under his command died, and Michael openly wept at the loss and There was no evidence that Michael Ross had carried out the crime. The evidence was all circumstantial. Finally, the defense team questioned the evidence of key witness William Grant. Just why'd he come forward after twelve years? Why had he been so scared beforehand? If you read the transcript, I think it's hard to argue that Grant was a convincing witness, with lots of contradictions and changes to his evidence. Listen to this exchange, for example, under cross-examination. The QC asked him, If you did see somebody in the toilets, are you saying that you don't know who that was? William Grant, long pause, no. What are you saying? I'm not sure, really. Over the period of 12 years, there have been many stories about this murder. Oh yes. When you told the police that the person you saw was Michael Ross, may it be that you have allowed yourself to be influenced by what you had seen, read or heard? Very possibly, yes. It was not Michael Ross that you saw that night. Would that be right? I'm not sure. Maybe it could be right. Important for everybody. Could that be right? I don't know what to say. It very possibly wasn't Michael Ross. Then later on in the trial testimony, there was another exchange between William Grant and the QC. The QC said, Is your evidence that when the person came out of the toilet, you recognised him as someone you thought you knew, you thought it was Michael Ross? Yes. When did the name Michael Ross come to you? It was quite a while after. I've no idea how long. It was probably days after, days or weeks. It was more than days later. I've no idea how it came to me. I must have been speaking to someone about it. I must have been describing the person I saw. I spoke to quite a lot of people. I was not talking about the person that I saw in the toilets. Who were you describing? I don't understand. Are you suggesting that until the name Michael Ross was said to you, you did not know who that was? He looked familiar, but I wasn't sure. I was wrong to say that I saw the person and straight away recognised him as Michael Ross. That is monstrous. Yes. This was someone that you recognised and it was only when the name was given to you That you said it was Michael Ross? Yes. Was it a civilian or a policeman? I'm not sure. Could it have been a policeman? Quite possibly. It could have been at the Masonic Lodge. Who might it have been? It could have been any of quite a few people. If I was to say a name, I might be wrong. I don't know. I'm sorry. Pretty startling evidence, right? The defence team took the decision that Michael Ross shouldn't give evidence at his trial and the jury took their leave to deliberate. They filtered back into the courtroom to give their verdict. Guilty. The judge branded Ross a vicious coward as he jailed him for life with a minimum term of 25 years. As he was speaking, suddenly 29-year-old Ross suddenly vaulted out of the dock and ran from the court out of a side door, only to be rugby-tackled by a court official, who pinned him to the ground. Ross's QC had also chased after him, shouting, No, Michael! No! Detectives later discovered that this was a premeditated escape attempt. Less than a mile from court in a Tesco car park, there was a hire car waiting for Ross, containing a gun, grenades and ammo. His lawyers argued that the plan was that he planned to head for the wilderness and live rough, using the weapons to kill fish and game. The experts called to give evidence pointed out that this was utter rubbish, as grenades and a machine pistol are not weapons used for hunting. Later, in a letter he wrote from prison, Ross admitted smuggling a Scorpion machine gun from Kosovo, which he'd hidden for seven years. This gun, plus 545 rounds of ammo, grenades, smoke bombs, knives, an air rifle and camouflage gear, were all found in the car. Prosecutors said there was a concern that rather than looking to live off the land, Ross was aiming to go on a killing spree. Michael's dad, Eddie Ross, speaking to the Herald Scotland newspaper, rubbished that either he or his son was in any way racist. He said this was due to his personal interest in military history, especially around the Nazi era, saying, I have a lot of books and literature on that. The police were searching at my house and came across this. People automatically assume racists, but I'm interested in all military history, and in this case how such a small group could wield so much power. When asked directly if he was racist, he replied, You couldn't print what I think about the British National Party. So Michael and Eddie Ross both were adamant that Michael Ross was innocent. So if it was a terrible miscarriage of justice, why was Shamol killed? Eddie claims that his son is the innocent victim of a plot involving the police and the Freemasons. William Grant, the main witness, told after the trial how he'd been threatened for giving evidence and said one letter included a Masonic emblem along with his name and the name of a police officer from the murder inquiry. William Grant admitted that he had Masonic links to the officer but strongly denied that Freemasonry had anything to do with his decision to give evidence after all this time. He said he was stunned by the letter and felt threatened by it. Michael Ross was unsuccessful in an appeal, even though the trial judges described the key witness, William Grant, as, and I quote, a less than satisfactory witness. After this, Michael Ross wrote a letter, which was widely published in the media, where he continued to deny murder, saying, The police suggested that the motive for murder was racism and that I was racist. I'm not racist and never have been. They say I was racist because of all the silly little scribbles in school jotters and inappropriate comments I made as an immature boy. I'm embarrassed at these things, but it was just me as an adolescent trying to fit in with the other boys. The suggestion that I'm racist based on adolescent scribbles and remarks is offensive to me. I never gave evidence at trial. Some people may think that's strange or that I was being evasive. But the prosecution lawyers are trained to rip apart what has been said and I watched them continually trip up and turn around or spin what other witnesses were saying so I would not have been confident talking at trial. My QC advised me not to and I didn't know any better. If I had the chance again, I would give evidence. He added, I have simple hopes for the future. All I want is to be back home with my wife and children, to spend time with my family, get a job and work for a living. I hope we can bring my case back to court to be looked at properly. So far we've had nothing but false hope from the legal system. I want my case taken back to trial to be examined by unbiased eyes, and this should allow me to go free and help in getting closer to justice for Sham Sudin Mahmud and his family. Recent developments in this story involve a book which concluded that Michael Ross was guilty and a documentary covering the case. Those campaigning for Michael Ross's release via the website Justice for Michael Ross were appalled by both of these, saying We're sickened by those with their own selfish agendas making wild claims about our community in sensational tabloid style. A trash TV programme was broadcast calling itself a documentary, but it was more fiction and opinion than fact. A trash book has been published purporting to be the truth about the case, also filled with inaccuracy, distortions and unverifiable claims. Both are selling the story that people in the community were willing to shield and cover for a killer in their midst for 14 years and implying that it's a sinister place of secrets. The people responsible for this rubbish couldn't care less about the truth. The campaign for justice for Michael Ross continues to raise money, which they hope will enable them to have the case referred to the Court of Appeal, where they hope people with new information will be able to provide evidence which will lead to the murder conviction being quashed. So what do you make of what we've heard today? When I first heard about the case, it seemed very unlikely to me that a 15-year-old boy would randomly shoot a man in a restaurant full of witnesses in a racist attack. A contract hit seemed much more likely, but in court, Michael Ross was found guilty. Look, we weren't in court listening to all the evidence, but after what I've heard and read, whether Michael Ross is guilty or not, I struggled to see how the guilty verdict was returned. There are certainly some strange aspects to the case, such as the bullets owned by his dad, and the lies told around alibis. But did the man who carried out the murder get found guilty in court? I'm not so sure, are you? But as we know too well, there's no shortage of people in our prisons who have been found guilty of a crime they didn't commit, and the authorities are incredibly slow to recognise this. I wonder if Michael Ross's case will make the appeal court again. I hope so, but I'm not confident. But of course, in all of this, our real sympathies lie with the family and friends of Shamsuddin Shamol Mahmud, Murdered at just 27, with so much to live for, and why? I think it's unlikely we will ever really know. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime podcast. To discuss this episode or any other aspects of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. And to support the show and access bonus episodes and other exclusive content, and to be in the chance to win a central London hotel room at the CrimeCon hotel for the Saturday night of CrimeCon for as little as one pound a month, please join us at Patreon.com/slash/UKTrueCrime. You know it makes sense. And please don't forget to get your copy of my book on Angus Sinclair, which is available on pre-order and is released next week on the 28th of June. Head to mangobooks.co.uk to secure your copy of Gone Fishing. So it's all for me for another week. So until we speak again next time, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, please stay classy. Cheerio.